Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. Well, good morning again, Haganite Church family. Uh, before we get going today, right into the sermon, I actually have some more good news. We're not just opening up next week, but I got a very interesting email this week. So if you remember last Advent, we took some time to pray for Christians who are suffering for their faith around the world. One of the people we prayed for and we even sent letters to was this woman named Twen Theodros. She was, to remind you, in Eritrea, she was suffering from sickness and torture in prison since 2004. 2004 was her first arrest. And if you remember her story, she became a leader amongst Christian women in prison. At all times, the Eritrean government was telling her if she would renounce her faith in Jesus, she would be released, but she refused to do so for all this time. She even refused an opportunity to escape prison because she was concerned about her fellow Christian sisters who were still in chains. But in an absolute miracle, Voice of the Martyrs has just recently learned that she was released from prison late 2020, so just before the new year. So I would invite you, I mean, this is fantastic news, but continue to pray for her. Pray that the Lord, first and foremost, would heal her from this life of trauma and that she would learn how to live free. I mean, it must be so difficult after so much time. And, and pray also that she would remain free. She has been rearrested before in the past. But I just kind of marvel at this. I think this is so good. I mean, do we make all the difference in the world? I don't know. But does prayer make all the difference in the world? It certainly does. And it was sometime during the Advent season or just after that she was released. And that was the time we were taking in order to remember her. So the good news is she probably never got your card. And that is wonderful news. All right, back to Acts. Last week, we saw our old friend Peter begin to address the crowd. And if, if you remember, this crowd gathered when they were drawn to the commotion, which was caused by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The 120, they were speaking in all of these languages. And these languages were familiar to all the people gathered at the temple at the time. And this all created a big commotion. And as people began to gather and they were hearing God's praises and praises in their, in their home tongues, Peter stood up to explain what was going on to the crowd. And he explained to them first, you remember, no, we're not drunk, as some of them supposed and accused them. But second, Peter said that something had happened which God had promised already through the prophets in the Old Testament. God promised to pour out his spirit on all people who would call on his name. And it happened. And this coming of the Spirit is a sign, it's a confirmation that the last days have come, and that means that the judgment is coming. And to prove all of this, Peter draws from the prophet Joel, and he does so really expertly. He does so really beautifully. You know, Peter gets it, and I can't emphasize that enough, because how long did we watch him not get it? 
Today we're going to finish Peter's first sermon, and we're actually going to get to the main point of his sermon. Peter is going to proclaim the gospel. And Peter starts the rest of his sermon this way, verse 22 in Acts 2. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, and we'll stop there for now. First, you know, the progression of Peter's argument here, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. Because last time, he used Joel to prove that God promised that his Holy Spirit would one day come, and it would come to all who call on the name of God. Now he's going to explain to them why this is exactly happening right now at Pentecost. It's all centered around Jesus, and that's exactly where he starts with his explanation. And when Peter says in, in this passage, hear these words, that's his shorthand way of saying, listen up again, this is important. And what follows is perfect. Peter introduces Jesus of Nazareth, and he essentially says to the crowd, you know who he is. I don't need to explain him to you because you saw his signs and wonders. You saw his miracles. Peter doesn't need to elaborate on a single one of these signs. Everyone in Jerusalem would still be talking about them. Many of them who were standing there listening to Peter would have seen Jesus' miracles with their own eyes. This was a widespread, it was a common understanding. So much so that the Jewish historian Josephus will later record, decades later, that Jesus was known, quote, as a doer of strange works. So he still had that reputation in the Jewish community even, even some decades later. And I love in this passage that Peter doesn't even need to argue about where Jesus' power came from. They all know, it should be obvious. Obviously, Jesus' power came from God. It was only the religious authorities who wanted to protect their own positions, who looked at Jesus' signs and wonders, which were clearly from God, and tried to convince the common people that these were evil. But for the everyday people, for those common people, there's no doubt where Jesus' power came from. They may not have understood what Jesus was teaching, but his actions, in his actions, God was indisputably at work. And so Peter feels no need to try to prove it to them. To this day, if you look in the Jewish Talmud, which is, which is a daunting task, the Jewish Talmud is about this long. It's the main scriptural book of Judaism. The Talmud itself does not even try to refuse that Jesus performed miracles. Instead, the rabbis in the Talmud call him a magician. So just like the Pharisees, the rabbis tried to undermine where Jesus' power came from. They don't refuse that he had power. In their minds, they are trying to convince the people that what Jesus did was manipulative and evil, same way as the Pharisees. But for the common people, it's obvious if, if you're healing the blind and healing lepers of leprosy, there's nothing evil or manipulative about it. It is clearly a work of God. And so Peter continues. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. So Peter may have changed a lot, but he's still Peter. He's not pulling any punches. He's pretty direct. Do you see how carefully he's phrasing this? He says that Jesus was killed by lawless men. And actually, when he says lawless men, he's making a pun. Jesus was killed by evil men. If I talk to you about lawless men, you'd think I'm talking about evil men in a really formal and strange way, right? Lawless men. But Peter's also saying that Jesus was killed by men who did not have the Mosaic law. They don't have the Torah. And without, they're without God's law. It's a clever way of Peter saying that the, he was killed by evil Gentiles. And he's talking about the Romans. But he says very clearly to his Jewish audience that they killed Jesus by the hands of these lawless men. He's totally clear about who instigated the crucifixion. And if you remember all the way back to the end of Matthew, the Jewish religious authorities, they were wildly successful in convincing the Passover crowd to suddenly call out for Jesus' death. In a day, he went from a celebrity to his death being demanded by the public. The pious Jews in Jerusalem for Passover rejected Jesus and called on the Roman Pilate to have him killed. The priests planned his death, the crowds begged for it, and the Romans obliged. It didn't bother them at all. So I need, I need you not to miss this. Scripture is perfectly clear that in the end, all of these parties bear responsibility for what happened. Because passages like this, when you hone in on the Jewish responsibility, over centuries, the church has tragically used these kinds of passages in order to persecute Jewish people. Keep in mind that Peter's audience that he's speaking to at Pentecost is 100% Jewish. He is specifically showing this Jewish audience their responsibility in everything that happened. And that doesn't mean that the Gentiles don't bear responsibility. They certainly do. Peter says all of this was done according to the definite plan of God. And isn't that an amazing thought? God promised through the prophets that the Messiah would suffer. And yet the mob is still guilty of demanding his death. It reminds me of God promising through the Psalms that Jesus would be betrayed, and yet Judas still bears the full guilt for the choices that he made. But we know where Peter's going with this. This is good news. This isn't bad news, because the crowd may be guilty, but there's already a hint. If God planned this, God did not plan for a disaster. God must have planned for a way through this sin. There is a way that these people listening to Peter can be redeemed. 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And this is good news. Jesus' death did not stick Peter is saying that there is a higher court 
than the Sanhedrin. There is a higher court than the Roman government. And the high court of heaven has overturned Jesus' death sentence. God raised him. God broke death's chains. If God planned for suffering, God planned to use suffering as a vehicle to end suffering. And even this, believe it or not, was predicted by the prophets. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So what we see is Peter, is he's perfectly able to go back into Scripture and to, you, to support his proclamation of the good news of the gospel with Scripture. Scripture backs up everything that just happened, and Peter is using Scripture to explain it to them. But it's always worth reminding ourselves, right? Like, what is Peter's Bible? Anybody want to answer? Go ahead. Yeah. It's the Old Testament. Peter's Bible is the Old Testament. That's the only scripture that exists. Paul won't start writing his epistles for a little while. And what the apostles and what Jesus himself demonstrates on the Emmaus Road is that you can preach the full gospel from the Old Testament. And if you don't believe me, Peter is doing it right now. That's exactly what he's doing. What Peter is doing is he's quoting from Psalm 116, verses 8 to 11. Well, somebody want to check? Is it 116 or 16? I think I got that wrong. (laughs) 8 to 11. This is another Psalm of David. David is describing being in the presence of God. God is before him. God is at his right hand, and so he will not be shaken. God is before him, so he will not be afraid. It's Psalm 16, sorry, Psalm 16, 8 to 11. So Peter continues quoting David. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Because of the Lord's presence, David's heart is glad. He rejoices. He is in a state of worship. He's responding with joy to the presence of God. And he writes, my flesh will also dwell in hope. His body is hopeful because of the presence of God. Why would his body be hopeful? It's kind of a strange way of putting it. But he continues, verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. This is powerful. David is confident that his soul will not be abandoned to Hades. We ran into this kind of language in Matthew, and we've talked about it before. The the Bible has more language than we tend to use, right? Hades is not hell. Hell is a punishment for Satan and for all the unrighteous, which will come after the judgment. Hades is the Greek term for Sheol, which is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's the realm of the dead. That's the place where souls go to await the judgment. It's the waiting room. Oftentimes, the Bible will simply call that place the grave. And that may may be a lot to sort of chew on in just a sentence or two, but here's the point. 
David is rejoicing that because of God's presence, he will not be lost to Hades. He will not be lost to Sheol, the place of the dead, a place of darkness and lostness. But something's a little strange here. Because you see, in the Old Testament, we tend to read the Bible backwards. In the Old Testament, there is no expectation that anyone will go to heaven when they die. Enoch is an exception. He never dies and God just takes him up to heaven. But nobody else has an expectation that they will be in heaven with God. Heaven is God's space. God is perfectly holy and we are fallen creatures. We don't belong there. There's no way we can get there. That's a message of the Old Testament. So even our heroes of the Old Testament like David, they only ever expected to go down to the place of death and await the judgment like everybody else. And after the judgment, they expected God to restore the world. And this makes sense. Uh, We know this, that without Jesus, there is no way to heaven. It's impossible. So then when you realize that David could not expect to go to heaven when he died, this passage starts to get really, really weird. Why is he at God's side in the first place? How did he get there? How does he expect that he's not going to end up in Hades? What makes him so much more exceptional than all the patriarchs, than Abraham, than Jacob, than Isaac? They all wound up in Hades. And then it gets even weirder. He says that God will not let let his holy one see corruption. But wait a second, you know, everything David has said up until this point was in the first person. He was talking about himself. And so who is this holy one that he's talking about now in the third person? It's like a new person's on the stage. Is David calling himself God's holy one? I don't know about you, but to me that sounds a little stultz, doesn't it? I'm the holy one of God. I don't think that's what he's doing. And corruption in this case, it means decay. So in some, what David is saying is his heart is glad, his tongue rejoices, his flesh hopes that his soul won't be left in Hades because this holy one will not decay in death. That's why his body is hopeful. He continues, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so reading the psalm at face value, it says that the way out of death has been revealed to David. David knows the way to enter into the presence of God. Maybe you're starting to pick up on what's going on here. There is some really sophisticated biblical theology going on. And it's coming from Peter's mouth, of all people. I mean, it is the Holy Spirit at work. And here's the punchline. This is Peter's explanation for these verses. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David... Of the, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter's saying, guys, David is dead. There is no doubt about it. If he's the holy one, he's a liar, because his tomb is right down the hill, and he certainly saw corruption. He is a pile of bones. 
But if he's not the holy one, and he can't be, then this psalm is about somebody else. Verse 30. Peter says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. We'll stop there for now. And we've touched on this before in the first chapter. David was a prophet. The Jewish tradition always recognized him as a prophet because he prophesied. It's the one thing you need on the resume to be an official certified prophet. And through the Holy Spirit, David wrote messages from God in the Psalms. The Psalms are often prophecies and messages from God. Peter's saying more than that, more than being a prophet, God swore an oath to David. God made a covenant with him that one of his offspring are going to reign forever. And if you just think about those crowds around Peter that day, they know the messianic promises better than anyone. Because these are all Torah-observant pilgrims. They're so God-fearing and Torah-observant that they would risk their lives to travel across the world to be there in Jerusalem for, for Shavuot. What Peter is doing is that he's suggesting that to the crowd that this passage from Psalm 16 is about the promised king. It's about the Messiah because it can't be about David. David was writing about the Messiah, his descendant. And David was predicting then that the Messiah would not see corruption and that the Messiah would know the way to escape death and to enter into the presence of God. Does this person sound like anyone we know? The Sunday school answer is perfectly acceptable. Jesus. When I would take Hebrew exams, if I didn't know the word, I would write in Jesus because Jesus is always the answer. And sometimes I'd get half a point for that. But. So I get it. This stuff is complicated, what Peter is doing here. But it's rewarding once you, once you dive into it. Because I think it's so cool that David knew his own descendant would conquer death and that his own descendant would, would, find, would create a path in order to enter into the presence of God. God made known to David the path to life through Jesus 1,000 years before Jesus was born at Advent. David is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth 1,000 years before the Advent. The Bible is the best. You have the gospel right there in Psalm 16. So much so that Peter doesn't need the New Testament. He's got Psalm 16. And just to remind you, listen to God's promise, which he made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, which is a way of talking about Sheol, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Amen. Verse 31. Peter continues to explain that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah. That he was not ab abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And there it is. That's what we just went over. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. 
Jesus fulfills David's prophecy and God's oath to David, both at the same time perfectly. His body does not see corruption and he is given a throne which will last forever. And Peter is saying that the 120, right, plus the hundreds more who have seen the risen Jesus, they are all witnesses that this is the truth. Peter says, being therefore exalted at at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's kind of an order of operations here, but I love this because just like David's psalm says, right? Jesus is in the presence of God. He is exalted, lifted up to the right hand of God. And more than that, Peter explains that Jesus has received the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. We're being told how heaven works. And Jesus, keeping his promise he made with his own mouth to his disciples, he has in turn poured out the Holy Spirit onto his followers. And the crowd of onlookers, hearing the commotion, witnesses to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they're also witnesses that this is true. This is getting complicated, but it's, it's really cool. I think it's so interesting that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to Jesus, right? So that Jesus can in turn pour it onto his followers. This may sound a little bit crude, but what this is, it's a heavenly handoff. The Father is the quarterback. And he hands the Holy Spirit to Jesus, and Jesus just gets to run with it. Jesus gets to give it to whomever pleases him. Jesus' disciples, they can only receive the Holy Spirit if Jesus is raised to the right hand of God. Everything that has happened at Pentecost is the promise of, it represents the promises of Jesus coming to completion. The proof of who Jesus is, his identity, is right in the crowd's eyes, and Peter is just brilliantly pointing this out to all of them. And he goes back to scripture one more time. Verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just in case you didn't think, you you still think that that last passage was about David. David himself wrote that it was David's Lord who sits at the right hand of God. Again, this is a little complicated, but it's actually a passage we've touched on before. And what this means is, David cannot be his own Lord. If David is the one who ascended to the right hand of God, why does he call that person his Lord? It's a simple argument. He's not his own Lord. This is from Psalm 110. And it's just interesting to remember that Jesus used this passage in order to confuse the Pharisees. (laughs) So, So we've seen this passage before. And let's not overlook the whole idea we keep seeing, right, of people standing in the presence of God. That's a big deal. We can go back to the Torah, Exodus 33, verse 20. God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God says in the Torah, we we are not able to see his face. It would destroy us. Why is that? And that is because God is holy 
And on our own, we are anything but holy. He is separate and perfect and powerful, and we are fallen. Unholy humans cannot survive in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus is at the Father's right hand. Jesus is the one true holy man who can make all men holy. And the scripture says that Jesus will remain at the Father's right hand until the Father makes Jesus' enemies his footstool, until Jesus returns with the host of heaven to conquer earth for heaven once and for all, and the enemies of God are finished. So then Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's it, case closed. Maybe you can see kind of what a punch in the gut that statement is, right? Because Peter, he's bringing his argument full circle. He's saying to the crowd, remember that Jesus you killed? Now you know where he is and who he is. Look how the Father treats Jesus. Look how the Father has lifted him up to his right hand. How will the Father treat you now for killing him? It's a chilling thought. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he proved to the crowds that he is the Messiah. And the crowds and the authorities together, they totally rejected him. And God confirmed that everything Jesus said was true by raising him from the dead. So for Jesus, the resurrection means more than life from death. The resurrection is like the eternal proof. It's the eternal evidence that he is who he says he is. And this Jesus is more than Israel's Messiah and Deliverer. He is Lord. He is King of both heaven and earth. And that's Peter's argument. And when he makes this argument to the crowd, he says, this is the one you killed. It's an argument which demands a response. Because how would you be feeling if you were standing there in the crowd that day? How would you be feeling if you happened to be there in Jerusalem at the Passover? Or if you were one of those crying out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. We know exactly how they felt. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do now? They get it. They understand what they've done. How will they be saved now from the wrath of God when they understand that they have sinned the sin above all sins? Jesus died to forgive all sin. And Jesus died even to forgive the sin of refusing him. The one true and only way to be saved is to accept the one who was utterly rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. What are they supposed to do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. In Hebrew, repent means turn. Turn from your sin. To repent means to turn from the attitudes in your life which led you to reject Jesus and embrace new attitudes which lead you to accept him. Repent. Prove your repentance with your baptism, with your declaration of, of allegiance. And not only will God then forgive the murder of Jesus, God will forgive all your sin. He'll forgive everything. And more than that, more than that, God's enemies, at that moment they are his enemies. They will receive his spirit as a gift. What kind of God is this who forgives freely his enemies who just call on him and then gives himself as a gift to them? You can wake up one morning an enemy of God and go to bed that night redeemed. That's how amazing our God is. Sin separates us from God. It creates a gap. But there is a way. You repent of your sin. You confess it and turn from it. And God removes all sin and dwells in you. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. His forgiveness is available to anyone. I love this passage because Peter doesn't even understand what he's saying. We know that. Because he hasn't had his experience with Cornelius yet, right? That's in chapter 10. That's when God convinces Peter, oh man, even Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit now through Peter's mouth is saying, everyone. And when the Spirit says that, the Spirit means Everyone has access to God's forgiveness. It doesn't matter your nation, your age, your, your, your wealth, male or female. Everyone has access. It's for you. It's for your children. It's for the generations to come. It is for all people. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. Remember, Peter's already told them, these are the last days, the judgment is coming. And he's telling them, through many words, you do not have to go down with this wicked generation, that there is a path which leads to life. And here's the result. So those who received his word were baptized that day, And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The crowd is baptized immediately at the sign of their repentance. And if you even try to imagine how that even works, all around the Temple Mount were these stations called mikveh's. There were these pools that you ritually walk into and out of for ritual cleansing in Jewish tradition. And so I can just imagine that these disciples of Jesus and these thousands of people all day were gathered around the mikvehs baptizing people. So I have a question for you. 
After three years of ministry, how many followers did Jesus have? Any rough guesses? 136. We know it's, maybe it's more than 120. Maybe not everybody came down to Jerusalem, but 120 is as good a number as we have. They're the people who stuck with him. Three years, 120. After a few minutes, minutes with the Holy Spirit, how many people has Peter, old get-behind-me-Satan Peter, how many people has he won for the kingdom? 3,000. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And he meant it. And we know from David, of all people, exactly what this means. And from Peter, that Jesus going to the Father is how the Holy Spirit was poured out on us all. And it makes us capable of so much more than we can even imagine. So Acts is full of these kind of... uh, apostolic declarations of the gospel, these major speeches where where they are declaring who Jesus is and what that means. And if you want to really impress your friends, that's called the kerygma. So when you're at the shell sometime this week, try to work that into a sentence, right? And you can impress everybody. I don't know where you are at with God. I can't know. I, I can't know that. We can read the signs and the fruit in each other's lives, but the most intimate parts of our hearts are only known to God. And if you're sitting here, I can judge you by your fruits, but in the end, I don't know where you're at. You don't know me in the way that God knows us all. And if you're watching online, it's the same dynamic. I don't know where you're at, and I may not know who you are at all. But all of this that we're talking about today, it's all about acceptance and rejection. Rejecting Jesus clearly makes us enemies of God. And you can try to get by and console yourself with the thought, I'm not God's enemy, I'm a good person. But we must understand what the 3,000 in that crowd understood at Pentecost. That it was rejection which put Jesus on the cross despite Jesus' love and mercy. So then I ask you, if you have not come to Jesus, what greater sin is there than continuing to reject the Son of God? It was rejection which put him on the cross. The crowd gathered at Pentecost knew they were guilty of this rejection. And it cut them to the heart when they realized what they had done. And as we mentioned, it was not only Jews who bore this responsibility. That's simply who Peter was talking to that day. If Jesus is the king of heaven and earth, he is the king of all of us. All of us. And those who have not accepted him as king reject him with the same vitriol, with the same pride, and with the same wretchedness as those who crucified him. So then you have to hear this. 
If God is willing to forgive every one of this sin, just as he said, it means that each of us who reject Jesus are guilty of that sin, if anybody can be forgiven for it, right? It is the mission of an evil spirit guiding this generation to convince you that all of this is make-believe and that you will be able to get by being good. Jesus said no one is good. The enemy wants you to go down with the ship. The enemy wants you to take the broad path the way everybody else seems to be leading and go down with this generation and to stand with this generation at the judgment. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Because there's no great and elaborate ritual which needs to be performed. There's no penance you can do. There's nothing you can do to make it up to God. All he asks is that you give up that way of life which led you to reject Jesus. And you accept a new way to live which embraces him. Repent. Be baptized and proclaim your allegiance to the king. And the promise is you will be forgiven. And God is longing to forgive you. God is longing to exercise his mercy. And what's more, he'll give you a welcome home gift. He will give you his own spirit. And you will go from an enemy of God to empowered with the same spirit which empowered Jesus. With the same spirit which empowered Peter. God, God, doesn't, God is gracious with all. Impossibly gracious. How could we even earn this? All of it matters. And as Peter argued so perfectly, all of it matters because of who Jesus is. He is the Holy One. He is exalted. He is standing now at the right hand of God and he is pouring out his spirit on all great and, and mighty and the smallest among us who call out on his name. I was so happy today when the band was playing because all they were playing was straight gospel music, right? <laughs> straight repentance and believe like at the cross. And it's, it's exactly where God is taking us today in the scripture. And you may have been a Christian for your whole life. You may have made this decision a long time ago, but we need to hear it proclaimed. We need to hear it proclaimed because what awe does it give us to know what we were given and what we were saved from and how little of us that that truly required because God is so eager to forgive. And how important is it for people who've never heard this to hear it? Because it is that same spirit of this generation which is covering people's ears. It's making them totally deaf to what God has been saying now for 2,000 years. And as we saw from David before that. The truth is that without Jesus, all we have is Hades to wait on the judgment. And then without Jesus, all we have is hell. But he is willing to rescue us on that journey and take us down the path of life. So come as you are. He has promised over and over he will not turn anyone away. It is his pleasure to deliver the lost from death. And that is the good news. Amen. Let's pray. O Holy One, in your spirit you are able to do more in us than anything that we are capable of. So we pray 
that this generation, that this community, that the people in our families and our lives would hear our hearts cry. Turn to Jesus, repent, and be saved. There is no other way than to accept the king who was totally rejected. And Father, we thank you for that longing you have in order to forgive us. And we thank you for the forgiveness that you have extended to us. Perfect forgiveness where every debt is forgotten. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus does not need to be crucified again and again and again for our sins. That the cross was powerful enough to forgive us once and for all. That whatever the condemnation of the enemy tells us, we are perfectly free. And we pray, Lord, that others would find that freedom. At this moment, each one of us can have people on our hearts whom we know need to find that freedom. And so, God, we pray, our hearts cry, bring them in. Bring them in to new life. Help them refuse the slavery to this generation the slavery to the enemy, and accept slavery to you, which is perfect freedom. And God, we pray that you would be working a magnificent, a beautiful, a bountiful, a limitless harvest of people willing to come to the cross. For all this, Lord, we give you glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website haguemennonitechurch.ca. Until the next time.